been a little while since I spoke on this subject, but here we are revisiting the treasure trove that is Shetland's archaeology once again. Let's see what we unearth this time around. And yes, I am sticking with that terrible pun. Five, the Papal Stone. We're going to kick off our list today with a choice slightly out of left field, and we're travelling to Borough to see the Papal Stone. This is one of several carved stones which were found in and around the churchyard here at Papal in the southern end of West Borough. It would appear that this was one of the major religious sites in Shetland during the Pictish period, and it was a massive centre for Christianity in the Isles. It's thought that Papal, meaning the place of the priests in Old Norse, was home to one of three tower churches in Shetland, the others being in Tingwall, which was the mother church, and Ireland near Bigton. Several of the stones from Papal seem to have formed part of the church altar, with one showing what appears to be monks crossing the sea, perhaps depicting the arrival of this new religion in Shetland. The stone we're going to focus on mostly, though, is the cross slab, a replica of which can be seen inside the graveyard gate today. The original stone is in Edinburgh, currently in the National Museum of Scotland. It has the usual features of a Pictish cross slab, with simple but elegant knotwork forming the cross face at the top, with a pair of monks either side of the stem and a beast below. The beast has been interpreted in several ways. The most likely of these is that it is the lion symbol of St John, as seen in the Book of Kells, or maybe it's representative of another dog or wolf from Christian teaching, although this probably seems less likely. Most unusually are the pair of birdmen towards the bottom of the stone. These two figures have birds' heads with long beaks, between which they appear to be holding a severed human head. They have human torsos and arms, and are both carrying an axe on their shoulder, and then they have bird feet and legs complete with knobbly knees. The style is slightly different to the rest of the stone, and perhaps they may have been added at a later date. The question I have though is, why? Why were they added and what is it that they represent? It seems strange to us now, but it must have been understood by those who saw the stone at the time of the carvings, probably around about 900 AD, although that meaning may have been lost in the mists of time. It's been suggested they may be a pagan symbol added to the stone. Others say they may represent demons in hell punishing sinners for eternity, which is why they are positioned at the bottom of the stone. I say it's impossible to tell for certain, but the many theories make fantastic reading and we can all come up with our own interpretation. In any case, the stones from Papal are fascinating and make an interesting, if somewhat unusual, addition to this list. 4. Catpund, Cunningsborough. And now for something completely different. An ancient quarry might not seem like the most exciting of archaeological sites, but frankly, Catpund is just a little bit different. Extending across a surprisingly large area of hillside above Cunningsborough, the quarries at Catpund were in use for an incredibly long time from at least the Viking Age until the mid-20th century, although maybe not continuously. Set high on the steep slopes, the area has fantastic views over the east coast of Shetland, and for this alone it's worth the climb, either up the burn for a more direct route, or a gentler ascent through the modern part of the quarry. Only a small fraction of the original Viking Age quarry has been designated as a scheduled ancient monument, and this is enclosed by a fence with an interpretive board, which 
explains some of the ancient quarrying practices that have taken place here. Following extensive landslides in September 2003, the burn of Catpunt, which previously ran past this area, became diverted directly through it, so be careful of that if you do visit the site. All through the scheduled area, and for quite an extensive area surrounding it, can be seen the remains of steatite or soapstone quarrying. This was a highly sought-after material in the Viking Age, as it was used in Scandinavia rather than pottery in many instances, to create bowls, lamps, bake plates, as well as fishing weights, loom weights, and spindle whorls. The stone is soft and easy to carve, but as it is heated it becomes hard and developing almost a natural glaze to it. At Catpund it's easy to see where whole bowls and other vessels have been hewed and chiselled out of the rock face. Steatite, soapstone, is reasonably common in some areas of Scandinavia and the Arctic regions, but it is incredibly rare in the British Isles with the exception of Shetland, where there are several outcrops which were taken advantage of in the Viking Age. Catpund appears to have been the largest, but there are also wort outcrops at Hillswick and Feidland in Norton Maven, as well as Fettler and at Kliberswick in Unst. The name Kliberswick is a modern rendition of Klebersvik, which translated from Old Norse means Soapstone Bay, and the quarry there is still active to this day. 3. The Ness of Burgi. Ness of Burgi is an intriguing Iron Age ruin. Situated on a narrow promontory at almost the very southern extremity of the Shetland mainland, the site is dominated by a blockhouse fort. This is an extremely rare type of monument of which there are only three confirmed examples all in Shetland, with another couple suspected also in Shetland. The fort itself consists of a rectangular blockhouse measuring roughly 23 metres by 5.5 metres and its walls are nowadays about a metre and a half high at their highest point. Within there's a central passage with cells or rooms on either side. Of course the walls would have been higher while the site was in use. During excavation by C.L. Mowbray in 1935, a lot of fallen stone was removed and stored in a large stack nearby, which can be a source of confusion to some visitors who mistake it for further archaeological remains. The fort is cut off from the landward side by a rampart and it had a ditch on either side. A ruined stone wall, which is now a low bank covered in turf, runs from one side to the other across the promontory and also appears to have been part of the fortifications here. Theories about the site's function tend towards defence. This doesn't seem like a great place to try and farm at any rate. However, it has been suggested that the site may have had some sort of ritual or ceremonial role because, of course, if you can't explain it, that's what you say. Archaeologists are not entirely sure how the Ness of Burgi and the other blockhouse forts relate to the Brochs. They share certain features, such as a cell by the entrance, but do they precede the Brochs as some sort of trial run? Are they contemporary with the Brochs or even later additions to support the existing Broch network, if that's how they worked? It almost appears as though the blockhouses are like Brochs that have been rolled out from circular towers to straight ones or flat ones, with the double wall structure still maintained with its rooms and cells within. They're certainly fascinating structures and they definitely raise more questions than they answer. 
Reaching the site at the Ness of Burgi requires a bit of a scramble along the rocky ridge which links the northern and southern parts of the Ness itself. There is a chain handrail to hold onto which makes the go in a fair bit easier as there are relatively steep drops along part of the route. If you're reasonably able and confident then you won't have a problem getting across and the rest of the mile or so walk is easy going across flat grassy headland. Two, Munis Castle. Swapping the far south for the far north, we head to Unst and Munis Castle as our number two in this list. The construction of Munis Castle began under the orders of Lawrence Bruce of Cult Melindy in 1598. Bruce was the half-brother of Robert Stuart, the first Earl of Orkney and Shetland, and his influence was linked to that of his more powerful sibling. From the late 1590s, Bruce had a series of disputes with his nephew, Robert's son Patrick Stuart, the second Earl of Orkney and Shetland. It appears possible, however, despite their disputes, that Bruce had access to Earl Patrick's Master of Works, a man named Andrew Crawford, due to similarities between Munis Castle and Stuart's Scalloa Castle and Earl's Palace in Kirkwall, Orkney. About 1571, going back in time a little, Lawrence Bruce was appointed Sheriff of the Shetland Islands by Earl Robert. Accompanied by his nephew and other officials and armed men, Lawrence Bruce moved to his new domain and set up his seat of power in Unst. Once there, he rapidly became unpopular due to his oppressive and corrupt rule. For example, it was alleged that he took bribes and that he had altered the official weights and measures to enhance the revenues of Earl Robert. His armed men felt free to seize control of ships and to billet themselves in the homes of local people as well. Evidently, Lawrence Bruce helped himself to the local women as well, and is believed to have fathered approximately 24 illegitimate children, beyond his 10 legitimate children by his wives. Eventually, the escalating conflict with the local folk resulted in a petition being sent to the king in Edinburgh. In response, a royal commission, the Moody Commission, travelled to Shetland and in February 1577 took evidence from 700 male Shetlanders and as a result, Lawrence Bruce was removed from office. However, by June of the following year, he had returned to the islands as Sheriff Deputy. Bruce's conflict with the Stuart Earls came to head in 1608 when Earl Patrick chased Thomas Black of Walza to Munis with 36 men. He was unable to besiege the castle before he had to withdraw. However, the castle was attacked and burnt by privateers from Dunkirk in 1627, although it was reoccupied afterwards. It was sold by the Bruce family in 1718 and had fallen into ruin by the end of that century. Given its rather turbulent history, it's no surprise that Munis has far more of the characteristics of a defensive stronghold than that of a palatial residence, such as Scalawa or the aforementioned Earl's Palace in Orkney. Munis Castle is a tower house built on a Z-plan with round towers at diagonally opposed corners. Most of the windows contain gun or shot holes, giving full cover around all sides of the building and especially over the entrance. The doorway itself is in the southern wall with an inscription which reads, List ye to gnaw this building qua began Lawrence the Bruce. He was that worthy man qua earnestly his heiress and offspring prayus to help and not to hurt this work always. The Year of God, 1598. A finely carved oak panel from the castle also survives, suggesting that its great hall was completely panelled in oak. The panel is now held by the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh, like so many other examples 
of archaeological and historical pieces from Shetland. Interestingly, the castle went up for sale in 2021, although public access rights to it remain unchanged. It sold for tens of thousands of pounds above the guide price, and yet two days later it was relisted with a new asking price of a quarter of a million pounds, 66,000 more than it had just been bought for. Additionally, the land for sale along with the castle had also shrunk from its original 240 acres down to 160 acres. I strongly suspect the buyer didn't realise that they wouldn't be able to renovate and live in the castle, and that due to crofting laws, the land which came with the title wouldn't actually belong to them in any practical sense. I absolutely love visiting the most northerly castle in the British Isles, as there are so many interesting little details to find and explore. One of my absolute favourites is what I like to call the pizza oven, which is located in the kitchens downstairs. It was probably a bread oven in fairness, so my little joke isn't actually that far from the truth. 1. Fadeland. Right at the northmost tip of the Shetland mainland, we find today's number 1, Fadeland. Now, I might be a little biased here given that I have a strong family connection to the place, but even still, it's a truly wonderful site with a special, unique atmosphere and no shortage of fascinating archaeology as well. Even accessing the site is a journey, either walking out the croft track from the road end at Eisbister, or following the coast from the same point. At the very least, it's moderately challenging given how steep the hills are. The effort is more than worthwhile though, and the view across to the Isle of Fedeland from the track are worth the trek in itself. Fedeland was the largest of Shetland's half-fishing stations, and it is the remains from this period which give the area most of its character. Up until around 1900, this was the summer base for the crews of around 60 sixerines, six-oared open boats, which would row around 50 miles out to sea to catch fish on miles of hooked and baited lines. There are the ruined walls of about 20 of the fishermen's boats, booths, where the crews would reside while they were ashore. These would have been very cramped with seven men packed into these small stone-built structures. It's possible to find some of their solutions to make life a little bit more comfortable, such as using shells as oil lamps to brighten the rooms, and one even uses a big lump of quartz for a shelf, allegedly to keep the butter on, as quartz doesn't heat up in the same way the other stones do. At the height of its operation, this would have been an extremely busy, noisy, and no doubt smelly place. Hundreds of people, from old men to young boys, would be employed in various roles, including drying, packing, and protecting the fish from the myriad seabirds which occupy the surrounding cliffs. Wandering around these ruins now, it's easy to imagine the hustle and bustle that would have been ever-present here. The shouts of the crews as they came and went in their boats, loading and unloading their catch and their gear. The hubbub of the boys chasing seagulls away from the fish drying on the stony beach. The orders bellowed from the factor, trying to organise the apparent chaos going on around him. If you sit still by these buildings and close your eyes, it's almost possible to hear these voices from the past echoing through the modern silence, interrupted only by the sound of the sea breaking on rock and punctuated by the occasional seabird. Who knew archaeology could be so poetic? Anyway, coming back to the subject at hand... Immediately behind the boards is a mound, which is allegedly the site of an Iron Age broch, although I struggle to see that interpretation myself. It seems like quite a strange place for a broch to be, kind of at the low point between two hills. The other interpretation, which 
is more reasonable, to my mind at least, is that this mound is, or was, a large Neolithic house. In either case, there were people here for thousands of years prior to the fishing station. Nearby, up on the eastern cliffs of the isle, which isn't an island at all, but is joined by a tombolo where the fishing station was situated, are the remains of a Viking Age soapstone quarry. The site, known as the Kleber Gyoz, Kleber being the Old Norse word for soapstone, as we've seen with Kleberswick earlier on, has rock outcrops where the faces still have the shapes where bowls and other vessels were carved directly from the cliff. One of the faces highest up the cliff is completely covered in people's names and initials carved into the soft rock dating from the 1700s right up to the modern day. Reaching this rock is extremely precarious, however, and also the site is part of a scheduled ancient monument and protected area, so I definitely don't recommend trying to add yours. As for my family connections, the last person born at Fedeland in a house overlooking the fishing station, which is now also a ruin, was a cousin of my granny's, and therefore of mine as well. My granny used to come out here for her holidays as a child, and even came here during the war after being in London for her earliest years. It must have been a real shock to the system of a young girl coming from the city to this remote corner of a small island. It certainly had an impact on her, and she never, ever lost her love of this incredible, beautiful, atmospheric spot. It truly is a special place. So there we have it. Five more Shetland archaeological sites that you should visit. Ideally, with me. Do you agree with my selections? Is there anywhere you feel like I've missed out? What should I include next time? Because there will almost certainly be another one of these at some point in the future. Another installment in Shetland's archaeological sites that you should visit. This is, of course, the second of these. I have written on the subject before. I've recorded a YouTube video and a podcast about it. All of the links to those are in the show notes. And if you would like to come and explore some of Shetland's archaeology on a guided tour with me, the best place to find all the information for that is the website adventureshetland.com. And the links to anything else you might want or be interested in are found in the show notes, which you can find if you just scroll down a little bit. That'll do it for today. Thank you very much for listening. I'm John from Adventure Shetland, and I hope to see you soon for more Shetland adventures.